0: Our sermon today is taken from the fifth chapter of the book of Proverbs, The Folly of Adultery and the Wisdom of Marriage. Not the happiest of topics, perhaps, but God's word has much to say on the folly of adultery, and God's people must listen to what God has to say. And and let me be up front. This sermon is for me. It's not for some other man. This sermon is for you, Sister, not the lady sitting behind you. This sermon is for you, brother, not some other man here today. In 1994, a pastor's wife wrote an anonymous letter to Ministry Magazine telling the world about the fallout she'd experienced due to her husband's adultery. I'd like to read part of it to you. I used to be a pastor's wife. My husband was a successful soul winner and an excellent speaker. He had charisma that attracted people and won their friendship. For many years, his commitment to serve people was genuine. Unfortunately, he let himself become too close to the women of the church. For 25 years, his warm personality and flirtatious manner won him many lady friends. I accepted this as part of his sanguine personality. Then something happened. He committed adultery. Who was the other woman? Someone my husband had studied with and had baptized. As he showered her with attention and devotion, I saw many warning signs and emotional ties being formed. Several times I confronted him about it, but he convinced me I was mistaken. He made me feel foolish for even suggesting there could be a problem. After all, the other lady was my close friend too. She sat beside me in church every week. With her husband and two children, she shared holidays and special events with us. She bought me gifts and told me she loved me and valued our special friendship. We often prayed together. I found out later that she fell in love with my husband the first time they met. The combination of her infatuation and his flirtatious personality proved combustible and they "...found themselves playing with fire. When the truth finally came out, the affair already had been going on for two years. My first reaction was disbelief. Then came devastation. I felt as though my heart had been ripped out and I was only half a person. My husband didn't acknowledge my hurt or seemed to care at that point. Emotionally... I couldn't deal with the little things of life, much less the bigger things. Financially, I couldn't afford to stay in our house and had to move. Meanwhile, having left all the responsibilities in my lap, my husband moved into a motel with our friend. Later, he took up residence across the street from my workplace and regularly attended my church. Our children, though they are young adults, also felt devastated. They still call me and cry. They wonder whether anything they ever believed in was true. They question if God is real and want nothing to do with religion. Life will never be the same for them. My point in writing this story is to help pastors and other spiritual leaders realize that adultery is worse than death. Its effects are so far-reaching that people never forget it or fully recover from it. New City, how does a person get to the point where they're willing to lose everything that's precious to them, to break their spouse's heart and to forever lose the respect of their children so that they can take up with another woman or with another man? How does a person get to that point? Know this, it's not, it's never an overnight decision. There is always a spiritual pathology behind that sort of rebellion. Pathology is the science of the causes and effects of diseases. And there's always a spiritual pathology behind the man or woman who commits adultery. A pathology that traces back through 100 bad decisions, 1,000 lustful thoughts, and countless moments of sinful self-regard, never crucified in the name of Jesus Christ. There are always countless little compromises along the way, little unchecked compromises that add up to final calamity. Beloved, the Bible is clear. We must be waging ruthless war against our own lusts. Romans thirteen fourteen, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't think about it. Don't dwell on it. Don't fantasize about it. I wonder, and I, I pray against this as your pastor, but I wonder how many of my brothers and sisters at New City are... Testing the limits of compromise. How many of us are allowing lustful fantasies to go unchecked? How many of us are allowing provocative images to have a regular place before our eyes? How many of us are pursuing flirtatious banter with co workers and friends, pushing the moral envelope in a sinister indulgence of ego? Brother, are you? Sister, are you? Don't you know, that's the spiritual pathology of adultery. And I pray you would perceive it to be such before the sinful rot comes to full expression. Jesus tells us that adultery begins in the heart, and we must cut it off at the root if we're going to avoid its fruit. Don Carson notes, this is a good quote, quiet contemplation of sin always precedes performance of sin. Are you contemplating sin? Proverbs 5, our text this morning, is all about arresting adultery before it becomes the deed of adultery. Proverbs 5 speaks to the folly of adultery and the wisdom of marriage. What we have here in poetic form is a man-to-man talk. This is a father instructing his son. Solomon wants his son to store up his father's commands, to turn his ear to wisdom and his heart to understanding. If he does that, then his son will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God in this matter. All of Proverbs 5 is a warning in wisdom categories against succumbing to an adulteress. Now, that doesn't sound very PC, does it? Uh, Why is the person doing the sexual tempting in this chapter, an adulteress, a female. Why that stereotype? In the real world, I mean, isn't the tempter at least as often likely to be a man? Yes, certainly. And and other places in the Bible speak to that. Uh, but in part, the warning is against an adulteress because this is fatherly wisdom offered to a son. Uh, but notice. Even in how it's presented, it's not all the wicked, wily woman and the poor, hapless victim of a son. This is a son who hated discipline and whose heart spurned correction. Verse 12. It said of him in chapter 522, The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He is guilty of great folly. Verse 23. So if you look at our big picture in your bulletin in your handout, the father's instruction is to his son, the father's instruction to his son is countering the honeyed speech of the loose woman. He is saying stay away, flee from another man's unchaste wife and instead be devoted to your own wife, enjoying all the erotic delights of marriage with her. And then the father warns his son about the economic and the social, cultural implications of marital infidelity, which may strike Christians as a strange motivation for purity. doesn't sound very holy, does it? Uh, But we'll come to that. But beyond all the economic and social reasons for sexual fidelity in marriage is one of transcendent importance. We read of it in chapter 5, verse 21, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. And he examines all your paths. The adulterer wrongly believes that he can do his business unnoticed in the dark. But our ways are in full view of the Lord. And he examines all of our paths. Adulterers and adulteresses need to know the Lord is omniscient. He knows all things and he is a God of justice. So point number one, the father's call for attentiveness to his instruction Beware the adulteress, verses 1 through 7, starting in verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom and turn your ear to my words of insight. And obviously, in all he says, the father assumes that his son is old enough to experience sexual temptation and pleasure. This dad is not talking to his six-year-old. The son is either married or he's on the verge of marriage which accounts for every man here at New City. So, brothers, incline your ears. And I I debated uh, making this sermon more gender neutral. Obviously, both men and women can commit adultery, but it's torturous. It becomes a pronoun nightmare to to preach it like that. Besides, I think it's wise uh, to let God's, God's word just speak for itself. This is a father warning his son. Proverbs 31 is about a wise woman, and it should be preached as such, which means I'll be speaking more directly to the men today, but ladies, all of this applies to you, obviously, and I'll be speaking to you, sisters, at, at many points directly. Now, what's the father's aim in having this man-to-man chat? Verse 2 that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. In essence, he's saying, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel over against the honeyed, foolish words of the adulteress. Listen to what I say. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. You will know how to live harmoniously in the universe God created which is kind of the, 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 uh, the, the purpose of wisdom literature. How do you live harmoniously in this world, this universe that God has created? How do you live wisely and not foolishly? The father is showing his son biblical wisdom and the path to godliness. After all, he's a good Jew. He, he has these sorts of father-son chats all the time. Remember Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And the topic of today's chat is avoiding the adulterous woman. On other days, the father might talk to a son about not being a sluggard or being wise with money. Today, it's beware the adulteress. As Tim Challies writes, and actually I posted part of this on the, uh, on the Facebook page the other week for, for our church, it is good and necessary to shelter your children from the world. It is also good and necessary to expose your children to the world while they are still under your care so you can help them interpret what they're seeing and experiencing. Do that with wisdom. Your task as a parent is to prepare your children to live and thrive in this world, not some other one. My son, listen to the instruction on my lips. Verse 3, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. See, the father knows. He's been around the block a few times. Someone else is trying to bend his son's ear, the wife of another man. And she has a powerful attraction that can destroy his son. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. She just has to speak to say things, enticing sexual things, and she can ensnare his son and bring him down to death. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. At the, w- at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house, at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to greet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I have fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. Till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare. Little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. So, the father's instruction to his son is countering the honeyed speech of the loose woman. He is saying, stay away from her. Flee from her. This this, this man's, this other man's unchaste wife, look out. She speaks in a way that oozes seductive charm in a direct and sexually provocative way that's appealing. Her words are designed to reel him into her bed. Flee. That's what the father is saying. Flee. Verse 3. For uh, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. She's full of deceitful flattery. Verse 4, but in the end she is bitter as gall, a bitter and poisonous plant, sharp as a double-edged sword. So that means whoever listens to her and has sex with her experiences the opposite of what she presented. Her honey becomes gall, Her smoothness turns sharp. She cuts her victims to pieces. Verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. Okay, what does that mean? It means the Mosaic law regarded adultery by Israelites as a capital offense. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both... The adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And during the time of the old covenant, Israel theocracy, that's, that was the law. Flip forward to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and instruction are the way of life. Keeping you from your, from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Or let her captivate you with her eyes, for a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread. But another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So, brother, do you hear the the rhetorical question that's being asked there? Verse 27. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? No, it's impossible. But the adulterer is a fool because he thinks the answer is yes. All he can see is sin's illusory promise of pleasure, not its real promise of pain friend, is that you? Are you playing with fire? Are you scooping fire into your lap in secret? Maybe you haven't reached the point yet where there's a lover in a hotel room somewhere that you meet for noon hour trysts, but there are allurements in your life that tempt you to pursue sexual fulfillment outside the bounds of marriage, outside the bonds of marriage, and you're nibbling around the edges. And I'm talking to married and single brothers both. Sexual fulfillment outside the bonds of marriage is forbidden. How's that for a countercultural piece of revelation from God? Sexual fulfillment outside the bonds of marriage is forbidden. But rather than believe the word of God, you believe you can indulge your sexual fantasies and not be burned. You are playing the fool. You cannot coddle evil indefinitely without it burning you. Who are you going to believe? You must believe what God's word is teaching you right now in this hour, in this moment of clarity. As his word is being preached. Otherwise, when temptation strikes, God's truth will be a faint, weak voice in the distance. What will be louder, what will be irresistible, are the sweet nothings of the adulteress whispering in your ear, because there's already this spiritual pathology in your life, tracing back through countless moments of sinful self regard never crucified in the name of Jesus Christ. And all those little unchecked promises will add up to final calamity. You will be easy prey. Chapter 5, verse 6. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. See, she's chosen to abandon God and her marriage covenant and not to observe the way of life. She's wandering aimlessly in moral darkness and without a moral compass to give her direction to true life. Then she strays into death and she'll bring the man who sleeps with her down with her. You know, fool. Fool. How could, how could you consider hitching your wagon to her falling star? What folly? A man couldn't make a more foolish decision. You're going to throw away Everything you hold dear, everything you've worked for a lifetime, your family, your wealth, your reputation, your wife's heart, your children's respect, your ministry, you're going to throw it all away with both hands. the uh, the quarterly meetings today, so I I knew I was going to pick some other sermon that I had preached before for today. But something happened last month in my life that I wanted to preach this text. Last month, the pastor of a church where I was a former member was caught out in an affair that he'd had with a woman in his church 10 years previous. He was 55 at the time. He confessed his sin to no one. Not his wife, not his church, no one. He thought it was over. He thought he had gotten away with it. And he continued serving as a pastor for another decade. He saw a blessing in the church. He saw growth. He saw building projects. He saw baptisms. Now it's all over. everything. Verse seven. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Who is the son going to listen to? The honeyed lips of the adulteress or the wisdom of his father? But really, the real question is, who are we going to listen to? For every one of us, the fight for holiness is a fight for faith. And when it comes down to it, are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God's word about what God says will actually satisfy us? Or will we listen to the lie that sin will satisfy us more than God? I read a post once on a Christian blog written by a woman who had had an affair and destroyed her family. And she warned her readers that the sex you have during an affair will be the best sex you've ever had you're going to think, I never knew sex could be like this. But it's all a phantom. Point two, the folly of adultery and the son's belated regret for not heeding the father's instruction. Now the father zeroes in, and here comes half the lesson in a nutshell, the negative half. Verse eight, keep to a path Far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Remove yourself from this woman's proximity. Extricate yourself from her presence. Don't come within earshot of her temptations. Run. Don't try to evangelize her. Don't try to witness to her. Take a page from Joseph's playbook and flee from the temptress. Literally, run. You won't look James Bond cool doing it. But James Bond is going to hell. So what does he know? Don't deliberately walk by her desk on the way to the water cooler. Don't sit with her on the go train day after day. Don't interact on Instagram. Don't do lunch together. Keep to a path far from her. Not only is her house a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death, but there are devastating economic and social consequences to adultery as well. Look at verse 8. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. Now it's it's not clear how the adulterer loses his honor and dignity and wealth to others. Commentators uh, suggest things like well, damages paid to a, a betrayed husband, money given to a mistress, payment for blackmail, venereal disease. It, it's hard to say. In our own day and age, it could be lawyers, lawyer fees, alimony, child support. Uh, but what we see for certain is that it's the father's intention to scare his son. This foolish choice of sleeping with another man's wife entails the loss of things every man holds dear in life wealth and honor Remember this is wisdom literature I I, I don't think the apostle Paul would use this same sort of argument um, the categories are different than what we see in First Corinthians 6, for example. But this, we're reading here, this is folly. This is foolishness. This is living unwisely in God's universe. Is there anything more foolish than listening to the enticing words of a loose woman, having sex with her, and consequently losing your honor and dignity to one who is cruel, strangers feasting on your wealth, and your toil enriching the house of another? fool Brothers and sisters, it's possible to build up something over the course of a lifetime and to throw it all away in 10 seconds. And what will we say then? The father fast-forwards this fictional narrative to the end of his son's life. He tells the young man that he will groan in a way a heart groans in anguish from a sick and wasted body. And the sound of this groan in the words that follow is heart wrenching. Proverbs five, verse eleven and following. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, How I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. And and at this point, we need to understand the important difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I'm going to take some time to unpack this. This is very, very important. Some time ago, the men at New City read an excellent book together uh, entitled Finally Free, Fighting for Purity, with the power of grace by heath lambert it's a great book for your isf if you're thinking of doing that um, if you're mired in any kind of sexual sin this book is a gold mine. finally free fighting for purity with the power of grace by heath lambert is listed at the very bottom of your sermon outline there lambert who's a christian counselor tells the tale of two men he met with on separate occasions in his office he calls them dave and ryan Dave and Ryan were two Christian men with families who had been caught after years of indulging in pornography. And they were crying in Heath's office, loud laments. Both cried at the same volume and with the same amount of tears and wailings and beatings of the breast, but events would later prove their tears were drawn from totally different wells. One man was crying from godly sorrow about what he had done against God. The other from worldly sorrow about the negative consequences of his sin on his marriage, his children, his reputation, and his ministry. He was sorrowful because he had been caught. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at it. this is on page 1161 if you're using our church Bible. 2 Corinthians 7, 8-11. to it's, it's worth, brothers and sisters, taking the time to understand this well. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So Paul makes a distinction between two different kinds of sorrow in this passage. Those two sorrows possess different traits and they produce opposite, opposite results we so easily confuse them because they share one obvious, the most obvious element, which is the sorrow itself. We rarely question deep remorse and stinging regret or impassioned pleas for forgiveness, do we? If we see someone curled up on the floor in a ball, crying their heart out, asking for forgiveness, begging for forgiveness, we're prone to think, oh, that's, that's the real thing. But Paul knows better. All sorrow is not created equal. There is worldly sorrow and there is godly sorrow. What's the difference? The difference lies in what one is afraid of losing. A person consumed with worldly sorrow is concerned about losing stuff no matter how honorable or dishonorable that stuff is. In the case of adultery or being caught out in pornography, a man may lose his wife, his family, his job, his wealth, his honor. That kind of worldly sorrow leads to death. So I can be in your living room, brother, as you weep and as you wail for all that you've lost because of your sexual sin and it won't matter one bit you have a worldly sorrow that leads to death and it leads to death because it flows from the same kind of heart that wants to commit adultery or look at porn in the first place a prideful heart the sin of adultery is directly linked to the sin of pride and at the root of adultery is an arrogant heart that says I will have whatever I want and if I want sex with a man or a woman who isn't my spouse or if I want to ogle pictures of movies of people having sex I'm going to have it I don't care if God doesn't want it I don't care if my wife or husband doesn't like it, and I don't care if I might lose my ministry over it or my reputation or my kids, I'm going to indulge. And in the moment of temptation, in the moment of sin, when we give in and we dive in, that's the statement of your heart. You're seeing your heart's true orientation. But what's the focus of godly? Godly sorrow, the good sorrow, right? The focus is God himself. Godly sorrow is motivated and oriented towards God. Godly sorrow is pained by the break in relationship with God. It's heartbroken that God is, is being grieved and offended by our sin. We say with Joseph, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? We say with David, David, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Godly sorrow doesn't fear that people will find out about my sin. Rather, I fear that God, the only person who ultimately matters, always knew. And if we're stung with godly sorrow, then we recognize that we are sinful and in great need of the blood of Jesus to forgive us for all the ways that we've failed God. And you may ask Pastor John, how can I know if my tears stem from concern over the world or concern over God? Three things are in your bulletin. Number 1, godly sorrow leads to holy indignation. It leads to hatred, not to being caught and all its negative consequences, but hate for the sin itself. So, repent now. Repent today. Don't, don't tell me that you've sincerely repented after you've been caught with lipstick on your collar and your life is in shambles after you heard this sermon and said, Nah, How can we know in that moment, the the church of of which you're a member, how can we know in that moment after you've been caught if your tears are flowing from a genuinely godly sorrow? We can't. It's impossible. It will take time to determine that if your repentance is truly genuine. We can't know it in the moment, though. Ladies, if the man who gets you pregnant says he'll marry you, is that decision flowing from a heart of true love? Or is he just doing the right thing? How can you know for sure? You can't. Secondly, godly sorrow leads to alarm. It leads to a healthy form of fear, habitual Unrepentant sin in our life should undermine our assurance of salvation. It should cause us to fear for our soul. Godly sorrow doesn't say, once saved, always saved, as we jump into bed with our lover. Godly sorrow leads to alarm, a healthy form of fear. Third, Godly sorrow leads to longing and concern for restoration. Godly sorrow is broken over the distance our sin has created in relationships with God and with others, and it longs to close the gap. Ideally, before our sin finds us out. And brother, sister, if you're currently in the midst of deep sexual sin. If you're having an affair, if you're having sex before marriage, you're having even an emotional affair or you're addicted to porn, uh, there is one thing that you must do. You need to confess your sin. And if you're married, you need to confess your sin to your spouse. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Your spouse has been harmed by your marital unfaithfulness. They have been directly touched by your sin. So confess it to them. You broke the covenant of exclusive sexual affection. Your marriage bed has been corrupted, defiled. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So, brother, sister, leave your gift at the altar, as it were, and be reconciled to your spouse they are your brother in Christ. They are your sister in Christ. Be reconciled to them first. In sum, the instruction of Proverbs 5, 8 to 14, warns that if the young man chooses the words of the adulteress over the instructions of his father, if he chooses to love folly over wisdom, he will lose everything. Wisdom gives the gifts of life, riches, and reputation. Love folly, to love folly is to forsake all those good things and court destruction. P.E. Koptak writes this Adultery is not only a sin that exacts payment, it is the ultimate symbol of the fool's pathway. So, if this is the case, what course should the son take? Here's the other side, the positive side. How is he to combat the folly of adultery? Through the wisdom of marriage. So stay away from the adulteress out of earshot of all her seductive words. That's folly. And instead, enjoy all the erotic delights of marriage with your own wife. That's wisdom. That's the argument. Point number three, the wisdom of marriage and a frank invitation to the erotic delights of married life. 15 to 20. Now, the water language used throughout this passage is difficult to decipher. There's lots of debates in the commentaries. We're not going to get into that. But basically, he's talking about the the erotic delights of married love. This is a very frank invitation to those erotic delights. There's a a lot of parallels here with the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to get into that. Very interestingly, uh, Jewish men were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they were 30. So... Some of that stuff's going on here. But the father is talking to his son about quenching his sexual thirst with his own wife. It's like what the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7. Having sex regularly with our Christian spouse and thus relieving the pressure of sexual temptation is part of the way Christians flee sexual immorality and glorify God with our bodies. So verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern running water from your own well should your springs overflow in the streets your streams of water in the public squares bruce waltke he's probably written the definitive commentary on proverbs he writes this um, he says that in contrast to the cisterns and wells of verse 15 which were private property so we're thinking of talking about marriage there in that verse these public places in verse 16 describe sexual relations with others that is sexual activities that violate the privacy of marriage. Verse 17, let them be yours alone, never, never to be shared with strangers. May your foundation, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. See, in the context of marriage, love making is better than wine. Verse twenty. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? The message, uh, which is a paraphrastic interpretation of the biblical text, reads this way. Your spring water is for you, and you only, not to be passed around among strangers. Bless your fresh flowing fountain. Enjoy the wife you married as a young man. Lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Never take her love for granted. Why would you trade enduring intimacies for cheap thrills with a whore? Finally, point four. The fatal consequences of sinning against God and spurning the Father's instruction. And here we see the Father grounds his teaching in in theology. He grounds it in the Lord's omniscience. The Lord knows everything that we do, verse 21, and justice, verses 22 to 23. Verse 21, for your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The adulterer wrongly believes that he can do his business unnoticed, in the dark, I've mentioned this story before, but when I was attending attending Toronto Baptist Seminary at at Gerard and Jarvis, uh, the prostitutes on weeknights would start walking the street uh, at 11 p.m. in the dark. There's a reason for that. Uh, I remember one evening coming back to the residences quite late, and while I was waiting for the light to change at the Harveys across the street, a very attractive woman propositioned me, I don't remember what I said to decline her offer, but she moved in close and, and she touched my arm and replied in a very sweet, assuring, and alluring voice, don't worry, no one will ever know. The light changed and I jogged across the street to my dorm. And it was a good thing that the light changed, otherwise I would have to run out into traffic to get away from her. I was, I was honestly tempted in that moment. Uh, the thought passed through my brain I probably could get away with it. But our ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of our paths. How, then, could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you remember the Ashley Madison fiasco a few years back? Ashley Madison is a website that facilitates extramarital affairs. Their motto is, Life is short. Have an affair. But then they were hacked, and their secret client list was released to the public. It tore through families, communities, and churches. People committed suicide. Pastors, famous pastors, resigned in shame. But it offers us all a sober warning. A day is coming when all our secret sins will be exposed. The scriptures warn us of a day when God will bring to light all our deeds conducted in darkness. Let we just read a couple? Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So your Google search history, for instance. H- how would you like that blazoned across the skies? Luke 12, 2-3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Hebrews 4 1. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him. To Him we must give an account. 1 Corinthians 4.5. The Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Romans 2.16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. But as Carson explains in the context of wisdom literature, there's an additional overtone. Not only does God see everything, including any sexual misconduct, but it's the part of wisdom, the wisdom of living out life in God's universe and God's way to please our maker. And there's justice. Behind all the utilitarian arguments about loss of honor, economic woe, there is ultimately a religious reason. The omniscient Lord, who knows everything, he upholds a moral order wherein sin brings its own punishment with it. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Proverbs 5, the evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cores of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die. Led astray by their own great folly. And as I read this passage as a sinful man, as a sexually sinful man, I thank God for the gospel. I thank God for his grace and mercy that he's extended towards me a sexual sinner in Jesus Christ my Lord. Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Brothers and sisters, for any convicted of sin this day, sexual sin, find refuge in the comfort offered by God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I implore you, let your sin be secret no more. Bring it into the light, turn away from it, confess it, and renounce it. Renounce it. Once again, know the joy of holiness, not sin enjoyed in secret in dark places. Then you will know the mercy of God, and you will have nothing to fear on the day when God exposes hidden sins. Trevin Wax writes this, and with this I'm going to close. I think many of us who have tasted of the Lord's holiness have a degree, some more than others, of the shame of sin. And we envision the day when we will stand before the Lord to give an account of everything we've done. I recall preachers past suggesting a giant movie screen will play before God and everybody else of all of our sins, the, the ones external and internal, the ones we remember and the ones that we don't, Every single drop of bitterness, every unkind word, every single second of lust, every hateful thought, every self-indulgent theft of the glory belonging only to God, all in stunning color and panoramic vision, like a list of names in the newspaper, only infinitely worse. This man is a pervert, the broadcast will reveal. But then there is the promise of my holy God himself that his son is not ashamed to call me his brother. Hebrews 2.11. He ought to be ashamed, but he's not. He has satisfied justice by taking the endless list of my sins upon himself, bearing my shame on a public cross. I stake everything on that promise and the promises from which it is derived. The promise that he will present me blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, Jude 24. Oh, he will read a list all right. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And because this ferociously holy and glory-jealous God has foreknown me, elected me, justified me, sanctified me, is sanctifying me, and will glorify me, My name will be found in it. This man, this man is a good and faithful servant, the broadcast will reveal. For I have been covered in the righteousness of my precious Redeemer. He has cast my sins into the depths of the sea to remember them no more. Amen.